Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes this week. And we are coming at you with the second half of some, a conversation that we began before Christmas about spiritual deconstruction. So I want to jump into this conversation, but before we do it, I want to frame what it was we were trying to do in the first conversation and what it is we're trying to do here in the second conversation, because these actually are pretty different conversations. So, Dad, if you were going to recap what we were trying to do in the first conversation, what would you say? Well, we took a an impersonal approach, meaning we weren't thinking of any particular individual. We were looking at the issue of deconstruction. Why is this happening? What are the, the ways people get to this? Uh, who are the evangelists in the Christian world who are trying to lead people into doubting their faith, changing their beliefs? We looked at the currents that are behind it, and we looked at the ways that people are typically approached. So we we took a more impersonal approach as to what are the movements and what is deconstruction and what are the movements that lead to it. What would you add right. to that? Yeah, that would be that would be how I would say it is. That was the idea or the framework aspect of deconstruction. Now we're going to talk about the people involved in deconstruction. And so, if the first one we were speaking sociologically or theologically. In this second conversation, now we're speaking a little bit more pastorally. And I, I think that this might sound a little odd. You might say, well, why not just have one conversation with ideas and people mixed in? But I just want to say before we get going, of course, this is a little bit exaggerated. Of course, every conversation has ideas and people as a part of it. Right. But, but I do think there is some there is a big difference between dealing with ideas on an ideal level and dealing with cultural trends on a cultural level and then dealing with the specific manifestation of those issues with a person who's sitting in front of you. And I don't think it's disingenuous to say that you can speak a lot more strongly to a cultural current and then have a lot more compassion for a person who's caught up in that current. And I actually think that's something biblically that we're called to do is to speak the truth in love. So to speak the truth um, on an idea level and to speak the truth on a personal level and that gives you the freedom to essentially be able to talk to the person who's sitting in front of you and not just to the people that you see on social media, but also to be able to take a stand against the ideas that are being tossed around um, in a more public setting and then be able to apply that down to particular situations. That's exactly right. There's When you go into the public square, which used to be literally go into the public square and speak to a lot of people now means social media uh, it means preaching teaching uh, reading writing I mean all those things that are meant for broad distribution when you go to the public square it's really an inappropriate place to talk to or about an individual you are addressing an idea you are and uh, that's the that's what gets bandied about in the public square. And it's a very appropriate forum. For example, if you, there are not many examples of this in the Old Testament, but if you think about the prophets, for example, read Isaiah and listen to what he has to say about Judah and what he has to say about Israel. And it's, he's not talking to any individual. He's talking to the nations 
unfaithfulness. He's talking to broad trends. He's talking about God's intentions. Then you go and listen to Isaiah speaking to Hezekiah, for example, one-on-one when the Assyrian threat is there. Well, that's a great example of he's saying, he's not saying a different truth, but he's speaking to an individual versus speaking to a nation or speaking to an idea. I, I just think this is very common. I don't know that we in our public discourse draw this line strongly enough. But if you're in the public square, you're expected to speak to ideas, not people. And in fact, if we would stop speaking poorly of people and to people in the public square, we'd have more civil discourse. I think that's exactly right. I think if we can better distinguish um, those different realms, it would probably help our dialogue in both realms. Um, And so the way we kind of decided to frame this discussion is pastorally. And one of the things about being a pastor, and this goes back, not just, you know, in the American church, this goes back all the way to the early church. When you talk about something like spiritual direction, for example, it's kind of an older term for pastoral counsel, having somebody come to your office or over coffee and say, what's going on? Let's talk about it. Or somebody grabs you after the service and says, Hey, I really want to talk about what's going on in my life this week. Or I've really been wondering about this. Can we sit down and talk? Spiritual direction is essentially soul care. And I love you and I have both drawn from Eugene Peterson on this topic. Um, Speaking to the soul, the cure of souls, the care of souls is one of the most important and sacred pastoral duties. And in some ways, it's similar to physical care. So one of the things that you need to do sometimes when you're listening to someone is figure out what the problem really is. And a lot of times that basically takes place by just asking good questions, allowing somebody to talk. And we've all been in a situation before where we actually needed to just spend time with a good listener talking now what the real problem is. Sometimes we don't really know what the root of the issue is. We just need to talk about it. And so a lot of times what you'll do is you'll listen and ask good questions to see if you can make a diagnosis, a spiritual diagnosis as to what the problem is or what the issue is or what the root cause is. And so I think that is really one of the most important things you can do in the topic of deconstruction. And when we move from the idea part of it into the personal part of it, usually you're not going to hear the term deconstruction. There are very few times you would have somebody come and sit in your office across from you and say, I'm deconstructing. Can you help me? (laughs) That's not usually how it's going to come out. A lot of times it's going to come out differently and you're going to realize, oh, there's, there's some real deconstruction taking place here. Or, wow, this person feels like their faith is just falling apart or they just can't believe what they used to believe, or um, the relationships that they have with people, the people that they love are pulling them away from what they thought they believed. These are the kinds of things you'll probably hear somebody say. So I want to break this up into two conversations that you might have and get your advice or get your pastoral counsel that you might share with these people. The first person is somebody who comes in and says, you know, I just, I grew up in the church and I, you know, have read the Bible and been to vacation Bible school and served and was in the youth group and was in a college ministry and we're in a Sunday school class. And, you know, they, 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 they are involved in the church, but I'm just not sure anymore that I can believe in things like the flood. Did the the earth really flood? There's no archeological evidence for this. Um, You know, we're Adam and Eve, really real people. Is there a real hell? Some of this just as I grow up and as I kind of mature more, I'm just, 
not sure I believe the things I used to believe. Have you had conversations like this? And how would you begin to talk to that person? That's a that's a very common situation for me. I'm sure it probably has been for you as well, is the idea of I'm beginning to doubt some things I used to believe were true. And uh, I would refer our listeners to a great article on this kind of topic that Tim Keller did. He didn't coin this phrase, doubt your doubts, but he used it very well. And back in November of 2016, he wrote an article in the Gospel Coalition uh, called Five Ways to Doubt Your Doubts. And it's worth reading. It's a short article. It talks about a couple of individuals he actually had in his congregation who presented with these kinds of feelings, these kinds of thoughts. And uh, I would just refer you to that article. But the the instead of, you know, the approach you tend to take if you aren't careful is to argue every point and try to argue somebody into submission. And I think that's probably not the right pastoral approach because it's a lot of talking, not many questioning, a lot of tell, not much ask. And I think it's important to uncover how somebody got here because think about this. This is something that they say, I used to believe this and now I'm having trouble believing it. I have doubts. So what I think pastorally you'd like to uncover not just for yourself, for them, because most of the time they're not aware of how they got where they are. And that's just to ask some questions. Why did you believe this before? And what led you to think this now? And, uh, you know, it may be that someone said, I'm just having a hard time emotionally with bad things happening to good people. I'm starting to wrestle with the idea of is heaven and hell really fair? Uh, those kinds of things present. And, and I like to start by asking questions, as you suggested, as to why'd you change your mind? Why, why is this now bothering you? Because something has happened in their life mm -hmm. to get them to this place. Yeah, I think that what, what's important to remember is a lot of times these conversations are happening. This, this first one especially is happening between people who already have an established relationship. If you're a pastor and you're having this conversation, it's because you have probably a track record with somebody and you know them, or at least they know you. And so, sometimes in pastoral ministry, they have more of a track record with you than you have with them, but they right. feel comfortable enough coming to you as somebody they trust because this is a vulnerable topic. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things to remember, like you said, is there's almost always something that's usually not intellectual that's behind these feelings, whether it be something that happened, whether it be disappointment, whether it be um, something that they really expected from God that he didn't deliver on, or whether it be something that somebody else, maybe in spiritual authority or uh, somebody that they trusted who hasn't delivered on what they wanted. That's a great point. You know, sometimes you'll see either the hypocrisy or, uh, some kind of a fall of a church leader, a respected person can often trigger doubts. You know, as I, I believed in this whole system, if you will, and now pieces of this system are disappointing me. And I do think that's one of the ways people get into this. But one thing I would say is, and I, I often point out to people, not in an argumentative way, but just to point out that deconstruction is aptly named. Deconstruction is tearing down what you used to believe, 
but the mind abhors a vacuum. Something is going to fill that. And so I, uh, one of the things I like to ask is it's not a matter of you just stopped believing there's a heaven hell, for example. You now believe in something else. What is it? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Well, you believe in something. And so it's worth doubting those doubts as well. It's easy to doubt anything, but do you put, apply that same scrutiny to what you're going to put in its place? This is a great response because I think this is not typically the way that our minds are trained to work, especially if, like in this scenario, you grew up a Christian and basically you're not believing that anymore. Most of the time you have not thought about the the other options. You haven't become a Buddhist. You just right. don't want to be what you were before. And you don't always have the urgency to say, well, if I don't believe in heaven and hell, or if I don't believe in the historicity of the Bible, what do I believe in? For example, if you're doubting the things that the Bible says, which are far better attested to than any other historical document, do you still believe in any part of history? I mean, what what are the essential what are the essential tenets that you're bringing in your worldview and in your everyday life to everything else that now you've made? the Bible or Christianity an exception to. So a lot of times we we treat spiritual beliefs in a way that we wouldn't treat any of our other beliefs. And the answer to that is to doubt the principles that would lead you to make an exception out of your faith or the Bible or some portion of your Christian life. Well, and I think I've told this story before, but there was a time in my life before I became a Christian that I was an agnostic. And I thought then, and I think now uh, still, that it is an extremely logical point of view. It simply isn't really possible. So in other words, my point of view was I can't know that. And therefore, I will not believe it. So that was my reason for not being a Christian, which was not exactly deconstruction, but it gets you to the same place. But here's what I realized is not believing in something is not the way we, any of us live. We live as though we believe things are true. As you said, mm-hmm. we're going to treat people a certain way for a reason. Now, a lot of the time, we don't know why mm-hmm. we're acting the way we're acting. We do have a belief system. We just couldn't tell you what it is because we really haven't considered it. And that's when I it came to the conclusion and I realized, wait a minute, I'm an agnostic, meaning I apply that to Christianity, saying you can't be 100% sure this is true. But have I applied that to everything else, I think? It doesn't. I mean, I'm an agnostic when it comes to science. I'm I'm a big believer in science, but there are just some things you cannot yet know if they are true. Science, good scientists don't know if they are true, but no one actually lives that way. So what the conclusion I came to, Cole, was this. Belief systems are always a weighing of what makes the most sense, what is closest to being true. In fact, that's actually the way good science works as well. So I looked at, instead of trying to tear down Christianity, I lined up the different things that people believe. There is a heaven and hell. There's nothing after you die. There's a heaven, but there is no hell. You know, I just lined up these beliefs and I said, which one of these makes the most sense? Mm -hmm. And that's what I call doubting your doubts, applying the same criteria to other things that you would do. Because believe me, whatever it is you believe, if it's not Christianity, can be torn down just as easily. Belief comes from what is closest to the truth, what makes the most sense, 
and to some extent, whom do I trust? Right. Well, that whom do I trust is a really important point because we are not accustomed. Most people are not. Now, sometimes you get people that really are, they really do think differently about this, but most people are not accustomed to justifying all of their beliefs. In fact, you can get very technical. I mean, this is a big part of, of, of technical philosophy is how do you know what you know? And that part of philosophy is called epistemology. And one of the big arguments in epistemology is, do we really know things in, a, in any way other than trusted testimony? You know, do, do we really build our beliefs by logically deducing why we believe what we believe? And I think most of the time we believe things because somebody trustworthy told us that that was believable. I mean, that's why we believe almost all science is because somebody told us or we've heard from a reliable source that this is true. We have not done experiments to verify 99% of what we know scientifically as as individual human beings. I'm not talking about the quote unquote science. I'm talking about the fact that you go through your life and you think you know a lot of things scientifically that are in fact true, that you wouldn't know the first thing about demonstrating to be true. You know them to be true because somebody reliable has told you that they're true. Now, what happens in deconstruction a lot of times is for, for the first time, somebody has proved to you that you have not thought about why you believe something spiritual, but they almost never extend that into your other beliefs. And they almost never extend that into their own beliefs. And so what you're left with is the thought, well, I can't justify this spiritual belief, but you implicitly think that you can justify everything else you believe. So the spiritual belief must be the exception when it's usually not. Right. And it comes down to the trust because the person who is instigating this or this deconstruction is someone whose belief system is not open to scrutiny. But I can assure you, it can be just as easily deconstructed, which you make a good point. And here's something I want to point out from the scriptures, as long as we're here. This idea of when's the last time you heard a scientist say, I am so absolutely certain that the Darwinian theory of evolution is true is that I will stake my life on it. Well, we don't expect that from scientists. Let me, I'm being a little bit glib, but you have a hundreds of thousands of people through history, starting with 11 of the 12 disciples who believed what they were telling you and were trusted to the point that they said, I'm willing to die for this belief. And I think that's one of the reasons that the disciples gave eyewitness firsthand testimony. And that's why I also think it was necessary for them to not have Oh, you know, sailing on the yacht, flying around the world kind of lives, but to have lives that mm-hmm. that that we would typically believe someone who who lived that kind of life and died for their beliefs. If that happened today, we put a lot of credibility in that. Well, I just want to point out to all the hundreds of thousands of Christians that have rather die than let go of their beliefs in the past. And I would challenge uh, anyone uh, to think about this and say, the people that are telling you something different, do you think that they are willing to die for those beliefs? So who's most trustworthy here? I do think trust, as you point out, is a big factor in our deliberations. Right. So a lot of this is putting into perspective what doubts are really like. So applying the same kind of scrutiny that 
this person might be applying to their spiritual life or to the Bible or what they used to believe to other beliefs. And the point of that is not to say, well, if you think you can't believe that, let me tell you, you can't believe anything. The point is to say, basically, is this an exception? Are you providing kind of an exceptional treatment of this set of beliefs for whatever reason? Again, a lot of this is through listening, not lecturing. Um, the other thing I would say for the person that comes to you with, with this is there's almost always something that's not intellectual that's involved here, whether it's loss, whether it's um, sin, whether it's uh, personal crisis. I think most of the time we need to remember that the relational aspect of this conversation is probably going to be the one that bears the most fruit in, in terms of all the angles of the, of the conversation you're having. So I think about this, especially with parents and kids, and this has been my experience in ministry, is most of the conversations about deconstruction occur because a parent is really worried about what's going on spiritually with their kid. Usually yeah. it's an adult child or a high schooler or a college student. And a lot of times it's kind of funny. You talk to the parent and then you end up talking to the kid. And this happened in college ministry to me a lot. You'd have a parent that's really worried. And you're like, well, I, I know your son or I know your daughter. And I wouldn't necessarily, I, you know, you don't say this to them exactly, but I wouldn't necessarily categorize it the same way. I, I actually think they're going through something a little bit different. And the, the important part of that is not to play both ends against the middle. The important part is to remember there are three different relationships that are going on now in this conversation between you and the parent, the parent, and the child, and you and the child. And those are going to be the avenues that actually end up making the biggest difference is preserving those relationships, getting anything that's in the way of that out of the way, and then having the conversation about the actual beliefs. But what's easiest is to jump straight to the beliefs, pretend like whatever else is going on doesn't influence it, that we are all just rational Vulcans who make every right. belief out of a pro and con list. That's just not the way it is. If, you, if you're doing good listening, most of the time, you'll start on something like, I don't think I can believe in hell anymore. And you'll get to, I just lost a family member that's not a Christian. And I'm really struggling with that. Okay, the, those are related but two very different conversations. That's that's a great point, which leads me to another scenario that's similar, but not the same as the I'm doubting things I used to believe. This one comes from a particular reason that you touched on, and that is uh, it doesn't present at the beginning this way. But basically, I know my neighbor and really like my neighbor or my best friend, and they're a decent person. And they behave really well. They're kind, they're generous, but they're not Christian. I just am struggling with them going to hell. Or I have a, a person who I know that uh, is living a completely different lifestyle that doesn't comport with the Bible at all, but I like them so much. And they're such a nice person. I'm really struggling with what am I going to do with this, these beliefs that I've held? And that's what I'd call doubt for a really a different reason. So how do you, what are your thoughts on, on approaching that? Because I think everybody has, has encountered that. Yes, I think these are the conversations that a lot of times present as some form of, I just don't think I can believe in a God who fill in the blank. Right. Isn't okay with this person, does this, doesn't do that, speaks this way 
loves these people, but not those people. I just don't know if I can believe in a God who blank. And this one I think is different because this is usually doubt on behalf of another or what we would say being pulled by someone else. Whereas I think in the first conversation, usually it's an internal turmoil over your own experience. This one a lot of times is revealing that you may never have held those beliefs in the first place. And I think that needs to be said because we have been lulled into thinking that the default for people, even people in the Bible Belt, is belief. That right. If you're a respectable person in the Bible Belt, chances are you're a Christian. That just isn't the case anymore. And the fact that people go to church doesn't, doesn't actually clarify that at all. Did you really believe these things in the first place or not? Did you really hold any of these beliefs or was it convenient or were you part of the flow of people who did believe these, but you never really made it your own in the first place? And now what you're realizing is you're not standing in the same place that you thought you were or the flow of people has actually changed a little bit. And it's not so popular and upwardly mobile to believe the things that group of people used to believe and now don't anymore. That these, these scenarios oftentimes reveal that our culture has changed. You right. were moving with the culture. And now all of a sudden you're a lot further away from where you used to be or where you thought you were that you may never really have been. That's a great point. I mean, there's a reason if you've ever asked yourself, why is deconstruction? Why do we know that word now? I'm not saying these Things haven't happened throughout all of history, but there's a wave of this happening right now. We know this word. This is a phenomenon. Have you ever asked yourself, why is this a phenomenon right now? Well, there's a pretty easy answer. It used to be that the cultural norm was to, let me say it this way, hold uh, Judeo-Christian values and believe in basic Christian beliefs around morality. That was the cultural norm. It is no longer the cultural norm. Consequently, if you, when you see, think of the parable of the sower, for example, when you see people who did not actually hold those beliefs in a firm foundation, it is completely reasonable to expect them to be making this transition, which we've, which we have applied the label deconstruction to. And I think right. that's right. I think you just need to, we just, this is a wake up call and it's a good thing. Because can you imagine the worst thing that could happen to someone is, and I mean this sincerely, the worst thing that could happen is to think you were a Christian all of your life, go along with the flow, go with the culture. No one ever challenged those beliefs. Everybody around you is that way. And then you get to the end of your life and it's Matthew chapter seven. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But didn't we do good deeds in your name? And I'll say, I never knew you. In this case, I really think this is a wake-up call for people. And I try to point this out, I mean, gently, kindly, and say that basically this is a wake-up call that you didn't believe this mm -hmm. before. And I think that's God's grace. I mean that sincerely. I'm not trying to be flippant here. I think that God is giving you an opportunity to re-examine what you thought you believed. Right. Yeah, I think Kevin DeYoung has been pretty good on this. There was an article that he wrote basically challenged people who are making these cases publicly. What was it that caused you to change your mind? Because if there wasn't something and you can't give us a reason, you may not have believed it in the first place. 
it may have just been kind of a tacit assumption that the crowd you ran with believed these things, but you had no reason to really believe it. And now all of a sudden, the fact that you don't isn't a sign that you changed your mind because you can't point to anything. It's a sign that, well, the veneer has come off and this was never really something that you held deeply. Right. Kind of, again, like the sower, the roots weren't very deep. I'll tell you how Tim Keller has said this. This has stuck with me because it shocked me when I first read it. He's talking about a specific thing. And here he's talking about homosexuality. But he's basically said, but this could apply to everything we're talking about. And it shocked me when I first read it. He basically said, if you used to believe in biblical sexual ethic and you don't anymore, then what that tells you is you used to be a bigot. It doesn't tell you that you used to be a Christian. It tells you you used to be a bigot. In other words, there was another reason, because if you believe that's what the scripture taught, you would still believe that today because the scripture hasn't changed. And so it shocked me. And I thought, you know what? That's true. And it made me do a gut check. Is my view on these issues simply because I've been going along with the cultural norm? Or do I really believe that's what the scripture teaches? And so it hit me hard, as you can tell, because it made me re-examine, am I holding on to cultural bigotry, biases, Mm -hmm. or is this what the scripture says? And I think that's what you're pointing out here is I think people are finding out that they were just bigots before. Yeah. And there's a sense of arbitrariness. That's what bigotry essentially means is there's there's a sense of arbitrariness as to why you held your previous beliefs. But it wasn't because the Bible teaches it or it wasn't because you really trusted Christ. It was because of some ulterior motive. And I'm thinking of a passage that, that I think is helpful here. And it's where Paul makes a distinction between, on the one hand, um, admonishing the idol, you know, warning the idol. And on the other hand, having mercy and compassion on those who are doubting. Mm-hmm. And this can be a judgment call in the conversations that you have. And so I wanted to ask you if you have any thoughts or any advice on the person who you talk to over and over and over again, they don't seem to be making any progress and they are just doubting, 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 doubting. And this has become, we, we almost have a cultural obsession or I think, I think in some ways what it does is it relieves the, the pressure of courageously standing up for something when your default is always, I don't know. Because right. Christianity at the end of the day is not an I don't know religion. There, there is an aspect of Christianity that is we will never know everything. We will never fully be able to explain every aspect of God. We will never fully know everything exactly the way the Bible teaches it. We'll never be right about every piece of theology. But if that is your default setting, that is actually not the way that the Christian life is supposed to be lived. There is assurance in the Christian life. There are certain confessional statements that we believe and that you actually have to believe to be a Christian. So with that framework, how do you distinguish them between the person that is doubt, 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 they're never making any statements, they're never really believing anything, and the person who believes but is really just going through a difficult time? That's a great question. And it is a judgment call and it does require a relationship, but that's kind of behind what we're talking about right now is this is speaking to someone with whom you have a relationship, but 
you eventually have to come up against the reality that you've just pointed out, that there have been millions of Christians who have died for their faith. No Christian ever died for saying, I don't know. People put their faith on the line for saying, this is what God says. Think Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other because my God has spoken on this. And I think that's crucial. And I think at some point, you do get people who are tortured by their doubts, really more uh, emotional, more wrestling with grief and loss and the implications of their beliefs. And I think you go a long way. I think you go a long way with everybody. But I do think that the loving thing to do at some point with those that you know, you've, you've dealt with this, you're hiding behind the I don't know. And I think the only thing you can lovingly do is to challenge that person and say, when are you going to stand for something? It's kind of a Joshua moment uh, and an Elijah moment. I mean, this happens over and over in the New Testament is who is going to be God in your life? What are you going to stand for? I say it this way to people, what kind of woman are you going to be? You're going to be God's woman or you're going to be your own? Whose woman are you going to be or whose man are you going to be? You need to make a decision. And uh, as Elijah said, will you? how long will you go on limping between two opinions? And God requires that of us. Now, again, that's a judgment call, but I don't really want to be such a pastoral coward that I'm not willing to lovingly say, what kind of man do you want to be? What are you going to actually stand for in your life? Mm-hmm. It's time to take a stand. And right. uh, again, that's not the first conversation that you have with someone, but I believe that that's what love dictates at some point. That's what we would all want done to us at right. some point. I mean, that's basically, I'm not equating these two things, but how many addicts have you talked to? I've talked to a lot that said, I would have never changed my life if there had not been an intervention. In other words, if my family or someone that loved me hadn't confronted me and said, enough is enough, Mm -hmm. what are you going to do? And this is more of a spiritual form of having the courage to say that to people. Right. Which is usually most successful in the context of a relationship. Like you said, this is, this is, this is part of an ongoing conversation. I think the the verse I'm thinking of is first Thessalonians five, verse 14. And Paul is saying, we urge you brothers admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So this really is a judgment call, and this is where listening comes into play. And I would encourage, I'm not just speaking pastorally here to other pastors, I'm talking to everybody when I say you need to do enough listening when you're talking to somebody about this topic to be able to have a pretty good idea in your mind if the person is idle, admonish them. If this person is doubting because they are not putting any effort into their spiritual life, they're not reading, they're not going to church, they're not seeking, then it's not a surprise that they're not making any progress in their faith. It's not a surprise that they don't have any faith. So that person needs to be admonished. Uh, Maybe you've listened enough and and you're thinking, okay, this person is just faint hearted. There are certain people that you come across and perhaps people listening right now that you just you are faint hearted. For some reason or another, you just have such a hard time believing. And that person really needs to be encouraged um, to press on with the hard work of going before God, investigating what it is that you're working through, reading your Bible, um, putting yourself on the line in what feels like a very dangerous situation to assert the truth of the gospel. 
And then the third group, help the weak, help the weak. Some people do not know what they don't know. And there's no way that they can get to a point where they can even know what it is that they believe unless somebody explains it to them. I think of the scenario with the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the scriptures and Philip comes by and he's stumbling through Isaiah saying, what does this even mean? That would be a person who's weak. They just don't know and they need help. So these overlap. These are not all exactly, you know, partition categories, but you need to do enough listening. You need to have enough of a relationship to realize that an idle person, a faint hearted person and a weak person can often be treated differently and probably need different things from you. If you're sitting, having a conversation with them about their faith or about what they believe or what they used to believe. And um, those aren't airtight, but I found those categories to be helpful. Yeah, I have too. And and one of the things I put under the category of weak, meaning not uh, trying to disparage people because we've all been quote weak at times, but is when you're following someone and they lead you astray. That's one of the things that I see quite a bit is if you can finally get down to what have you been reading? What have you been listening to? There is a particular person or particular school of thought that this person, they've basically been following. They've trusted this person. And now this person is leading them into deconstruction. And I I think at that point, it's really important to point that out and say, you're not listening to anything except someone who is clearly not trustworthy. The fact that you're feeling this way and the fact that this person is taking you away from what you've always believed means you need to listen to some other things. You need to read some other things. And the number one thing of that is the Bible. Mm -hmm. I have almost never talked to someone who said, I've been studying the Bible in depth. I've been reading it broadly. And I'm now deconstructing my faith. That That has never happened to me. Now, if somebody said, oh, I've been reading about Adam and Eve and I've got heartburn with that. Why? Because I've been reading somebody else is pointing that out to me. But Mm -hmm. in other words, I really think that one of the things of weakness is putting your trust in the wrong people. Yeah, that's I'm glad you brought that up, because I think a lot of times that is part of the category of you haven't owned your own faith. You've been led astray. Now, I want to I want to as we come to a close, I want to make one caveat here. And I know you do, too, just Mm -hmm. on what is even possible and what the goal is in these scenarios. And mine would be all of this is assuming that the person has an accurate view or is striving for an accurate view of what the Bible teaches, because we had a category in our last podcast, which is essentially reconstruction, which is the person who used to believe something that's actually wrong uh, or something that they had been taught that's not biblical. And they are, quote unquote, deconstructing from that belief. We don't want to treat that the same way. So, for example, the one I used in the last one is the person who's coming out of an extremely fundamentalist church. They are used to essentially taking the teachings of man and putting them in the place of the teaching of God. These can be cultural norms. They can be kind of eccentric doctrinal beliefs that are not gospel issues. Um, You know, the definition of fundamentalist is a person that treats everything like a gospel issue. And a person who essentially used to believe a position like that, that is coming out of that, that would be the kind of deconstruction that you might welcome as opposed to what we've been talking about, which is a person who's leaving the true teachings of the Bible or of the faith, and you want to bring them back to that. Um, 
you need to be able to know, is this person reacting to something that actually wasn't true in the first place? In which case, deconstruct all you want. That's good, actually. To leave those things and arrive at the truth is a great thing. And uh, so I know there are people out there, and this is where the category confusion we talked about at the beginning of both of these episodes can really take off, is you come down hard on deconstruction, and the person is essentially saying, well, you know, what I'm deconstructing from is a church that I grew up in that said that, you know, women can never speak or have a thought about God. Well, okay, well, you should deconstruct from that. That actually isn't God's truth. And mm-hmm. I'm, that's not what we're talking about. But that, right. that can be a bait and switch uh, where you condemn deconstruction. And then the person says, well, my deconstruction is this. And you say, well, that's actually not what we mean by deconstruction. So make sure that you know what the person is reacting against. And if it is a biblical um, if, it, if it is a biblical doctrine or if it is something that's true, then we want to reconstruct. We want to bring a person back to belief or we want to encourage somebody to believe what God has said. And if it's not, then we want to forget it. And uh, that, that could be a good kind of deconstruction. That's a, that's a great point. Well, I want to say two unpopular things and then one, one very popular thing. The first is this is you can't fix people. And if you're a pastor, you're a friend, you're anybody, you really need to get it out of your head that you can fix this. Meaning I can explain it to you well enough that you will now believe. I can debate well enough. I can love you well enough. I told you this was going to be unpopular, that you will now believe me and not the other person. Because even if you could. You have just replaced one master for another. They used to follow so-and-so, now they follow you. And that's not a good thing, because that's not what we're pastors for, is to develop a following. Now, to the extent that we speak truth, we hope that people agree with us. We hope they'll walk with us in that. But you really need to get rid of the idea that you have the power to save someone in this situation, because you don't. What do you have? You have the faithful duty to lovingly help, encourage, admonish whatever is needed, whatever is loving for that person. That's what you can do. The second thing is, is that our goal is not to draw people to ourselves through our intelligence or our personality, or I'm going to convince you to come do this, uh, although we'll, we'll be as persuasive as we can because we are passionate about what we believe to be true. We are actually here to point people to God. And that's the only place you can trust because you just talked about reconstructing. What's the difference? I could reconstruct someone into my own error. Mm -hmm. The only way you can know that you are constructing a solid faith is that it has to be through God. Now, here's my second unpopular thing. You're basically pointing people to Jesus, but that's not actually sufficient. And here's what I mean by that. This is, I told you this would be unpopular. And here's what I mean by that. You don't know anything about Jesus until you go to the word. We worship Jesus Christ, not the word of God. But if you worship Jesus Christ without the word of God, you will create your own Jesus to Mm -hmm. worship. So I want you to hear me clearly on that. I'm not saying we worship the word, the Bible. What I'm telling you is, is that was revealed by God so that you can accurately find Jesus Christ. And so for me, I, I would just urge everybody, don't take on the responsibility to fix people. Take on the responsibility to love them, to admonish them, to encourage them, to equip yourself, to be able to tell them the truth and point them to Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself 
in the word of God. Right. Well, I think that's fantastic advice. And I, and I do think that is a little bit unpopular, uh, but it is true. And uh, that leads us to kind of a closing thought, which is the best thing you can do to have these conversations is grow in your knowledge of Christ as he's revealed in the word, not to be a Bible brainiac, but to be sure that your relationship is with the living God that you encounter through his word. And so um, all these situations are different, but I hope this framework has been helpful for people uh, in the conversations that they have, because I I, want to say to everybody, these conversations are going to get more common. They're going to get much more common. Sometimes there are flavor of deconstruction as in a person who um, is moving away from Christianity. A lot of times it's going to be evangelism. And I think there's never been a time where learning to share your faith in conversations with people as an antidote to deconstruction uh, has, has been necessary in the church. And so these conversations are actually something we need to get more comfortable with and more familiar with as time goes on, because I have a feeling that we're going to be having more of them. Uh, I agree. And, I, and hopefully this has been helpful to equip you with what's actually happening. And then secondly, how you might faithfully uh, approach these situations. But as with everything like this, when you don't control it, then prayer becomes a big part of it. And never underestimate the value of praying for people. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. We'll be right back.